It's Thursday, March 23rd. The school searched him every day for weapons. Yesterday, he had one. We start here. With a Colorado school already on edge over safety, two administrators are shot. The community is badly shaken, especially a school who has seen stuff like this before. What happens when you kick police out of schools, but the students want them back? We're smart enough to transplant organs, we just can't keep track of them. People die every day waiting for, for organ transplants, and there are over 100,000 people waiting for one in the U.S. Now the federal government wants to overhaul the organ donation system. And people warned that pandemic assistance programs were open to fraud. Guess what happened? They have no idea how much money was defrauded from the American government. These aren't victimless crimes, just ask the victims. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Yesterday marked exactly two years since a shooter walked into a supermarket in Boulder, Colorado and opened fire. He killed 10 people. There was at least two shots fired at us as we were running to the front of the store. We all just rushed and jumped about five feet down from the loading dock. This is a state, of course, with a long history of mass shootings, specifically mass shootings by alienated young men with access to guns. They want to know who he spoke to, what they talked about. They're going through his social media accounts. In Boulder, the suspect was a 21-year-old man who'd once expressed anger about being bullied by his high school wrestling teammates. Well, yesterday, exactly two years to the day after that, shots once again rang out, this time at a high school in Denver. The school placed on lockdown, students barricading themselves inside. Like nothing's being done, my son is breaking down. How much more is it going to take before people start realizing this place is a ticking time bomb? The shooter, police say, was a young man who had already prompted concern among school safety officials. Let's take you straight to Colorado right now. ABC's Jeffrey Cook is based in Denver. And Jeff, you spent time at the scene in the aftermath here. What do we know? Yeah, hey, Brad. Yesterday, I spent a few hours at Denver East High School right after it happened talking to students and administrators. I'm deeply sorry that we're here. I really, really um, feel strongly that we shouldn't be here, but here we are. It was a little before 10 o'clock when a student was coming into school who gets searched every day under a safety plan. And when the administrators were going through their bag, shots rang out. Uh, We are looking for the suspect. We will find that suspect. The student who fired the shots was able to pretty quickly get away, run from the school. There was a lockdown. One of my granddaughters was in a room that has no windows, absolutely nothing. When she texted, my son told them to make sure they barricaded the door. Most students at the time were in an auditorium nearby where a performance was going on. It sets a little bit of a panic when the next thing you hear after hearing a little performance and a poem, oh, the next thing you hear is we're on lockdown, like, stay put. They were in lockdown for at least a couple hours before they were allowed to be let go. Parents were soon finding out. I'm like, why are you crying? And he's like, because I don't want to die, Mom. I I have a whole life to live. Like, why do I have to die? It appears now that two administrators, the ones who were searching the bag of the student, and apparently this was routine, were the ones who were shot. They are in a hospital. They're expected to survive. But the community is badly shaken, especially a school who has seen stuff like this before. Yeah, Jeff, can you explain? Because earlier you even said that this student was like searched every day. Is that a thing? And like what has been going on at the school? Yeah, Brad, it was just in the last few months that the student started at East High School. 
And because of previous incidents that were not clear on what exactly they were, this student had been getting into trouble and was now on a safety plan where he was searched, patted down every day walking into the building. They had been searched uh, previously to, to today and had never had a weapon on them before. However, today, uh, during that search, which, which took place away from other students, away from other school staff, uh, they did produce that we weapon and fire shots. Just six weeks ago, this school actually had another shooting. This time it was fatal. He was a soccer player. On February 13th, Luis Garcia was shot sitting in a car just blocks from the school. Families say that 16-year-old was not the target. Two teens have been arrested. The students actually staged a walkout in protest of the gun violence that's been going on not just in the school, but in the state and across the country. They spent so much time and energy, you know, remembering Luis's loss and they, it's just, it's gotta stop. I can't take it anymore. Like we're parents, like we need to do something. Lee and Jeff, it's interesting because even like just in the last few years, especially, we've been talking about defunding the police and what that looks like. And in a lot of communities, what that looks like is, hey, let's at least have fewer police in spaces like schools. Like there's no need to add police to the situation when a kid acts up. And yet when it comes to police or metal detectors or some other safety measures, it sounds like this particular community has actually been asking for those things more in recent weeks. Just like in every community in the nation, a huge discussion took off at East High School and across Denver about whether or not police officers should be in school in the wake of the George Floyd murder in 2020. It was then that the Denver School Board actually voted to take away school resource officers across from the entire public school system. Instead, they would have Denver public school officers nearby ready to respond, but there was no armed security inside these schools. It's someone who needs to be trained to work with students who are high risk to themselves and others. Students I spoke to have been asking for metal detectors to bring those school resource officers back. They don't trust that a nearby officer can respond just within minutes because the way it was phrased to me is that this is an incident that needs to be responded to within seconds. We don't have any police in the school. There's no metal detectors. I'm tired of hearing there's not money for that. Don't tell me that we don't have money for that. In fact, on the day of the shooting, one of the victims, one of the deans, was supposed to hold a meeting with students about whether or not to bring school resource officers to the schools. And Jeff, you've told me before that like, being based in Colorado, you can't talk to somebody in the state who hasn't had their life affected one way or another by gun violence, like just by having a kid in the school system for the last 20 years. And even with a state legislature that's more aggressive towards guns, we continue to see these shootings schools in other parts of society. Jeff Cook, they're in Denver. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, have a heart if you can get to the front of the line. We're back after the break. We all know there are things in life you got to compromise on. Like when I want burritos, but my wife wants salad, the compromise is we get salads. But when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who doesn't take the time to really hear your health concerns or who's in a rush to end your appointments. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network 
doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance, so literally no compromises, because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. If you're not a first responder who deals with life and death every day, it's mind-boggling to imagine what it would be like to save somebody's life, right? To be that figure someone could point to and say, without that person, I wouldn't be alive today. And yet that's literally what's at stake with so many organ donations in this country. Last year, we saw more than 40,000 organ transplants, and yet every day, 17 people die in this country while stuck on the waiting list. Well, yesterday, the federal government initiated an overhaul in how we do this, hopefully to shorten that line a little bit. Nicole Wetzman is with the ABC Medical Unit. Nicole, what's happening here? Like, what what, what are the issues with organ donations? Yeah, so organ donations obviously are incredible technology that allow um, for people's lives to be saved every day. Um, and the goal is to be able to connect every potential donated organ with a person who could benefit from that organ and have it save their life. And in this country, we have a kind of a complicated system for handling uh, organ transplants and donations. So everything is overseen by HHS, you know, the federal agency, and they run the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, um, which is this like public-private partnership. So mm. it's a partnership between HHS and then like a, a separate private agency that kind of manages and, and runs the program. And that's what's called UNOS, um, which is kind of probably what most people would think of when they think of organ donations. You know, you hear UNOS mentioned all the time on like Grey's Anatomy, for example. Um, and so they are responsible for running the system that matches donated organs with people who need organs. Um, and then they also kind of run the criteria for like who is prioritized for an organ. Um, and then they are also in charge of overseeing the, the, um, these procurement centers. Um, there are 56 of them in the United States who are the ones who are kind of doing the more on the ground work. Starting kind of around last summer, um, there started to be like a little more noise about, well, okay, is this system like running efficiently? And, um, the Washington Post reported on kind of an internal review. Uh, an internal government review that um, kind of outlined a lot of issues with UNOS and their tech systems and like were the tech systems just sufficient to actually kind of handle what they needed to be handling. And around the same time, there was also 
uh, hearings in the Senate. Far too many Americans are dying needlessly because UNOS and many of the transplant organizations it oversees are failing. So some of the problems that came up, particularly in this this hearing in the Senate, was, you know, there have been over a thousand complaints about the organ system. Um, so that's kind of fairly significant from like patients and staff and transplant centers, um, you know, complaints about things like failure to complete tests for um, blood types or infections. Um, the investigation found some patient deaths after transplants from organs with the wrong blood type, um, you know, diseases from transplanted organs, um, which obviously is like a huge deal because an organ is supposed to be a life-saving donation and, and if it's going to create kind of other issues, um, that's a big problem. So there were just kind of errors that were cropping up in the system and, you know, organs potentially being like lost, like they were abandoned at airports, they were never picked wow. up. Um <laughs> And this is in a situation where, like you said, people die every day waiting for, for organ transplants, and there are over 100,000 people waiting for one in the U.S. Well, and, Nicole, it's, it's 2023. Like, we're able to adjust our radius for a match on Tinder. And if so if, if matching up people with their organs is still an issue, I mean, what are the fixes to that then? Yeah, so yesterday, HHS kind of put out proposals for, like, modernizing and upgrading the system. Um, one of the big things was, like, tech modernization. Like, let's have our systems, like, work better and more efficiently. They also are said that they're going to be kind of opening up more open bidding for various pieces of kind of the contract to manage the organ transplant system. So UNOS has held this contract for as long as this system has been in place. They've been the only group that has been in charge of organ transplants in the United States. So there have been calls that they're like a monopoly, it needs to be broken up. I'll just be clear. You should lose this contract. You should not be allowed anywhere near the organ transplant system in this country. Some of what HHS is saying that they're going to do is open up bids for like pieces of the system. Like does, you know, the tech need to be run by the same people who are deciding what the prioritization is, for example, um, and just kind of distributing that. And they're saying, you know, if we improve the mm. competition there, that'll lead to innovation and we'll have kind of a, an improved improved system. None of this is going to improve overnight. Um, this is going to be a long process, most likely. But the goal is to like improve the system overall, improve the efficiency, have innovation in kind of the way that we're monitoring and distributing these organs to hopefully ensure that like as many as possible get from a donor to a patient and, and save their life. Yeah, kind of a, like a bureaucratic step, but if you're one of these families that have been dealing with either being on the waiting list or even having problems with organ donations, a, a big, big moment here in the federal level. Uh, Nicole Wetzman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So you might remember last year, we spoke to the sponsor of a Florida bill that became known by critics as the so-called Don't Say Gay bill. The school district doesn't need to insert themselves at that point when children are still learning how to read and do basic math. We talked to the state legislator named Joe Harding. Well, this week, Joe Harding pleaded guilty to wire fraud, money laundering, and making false statements to the feds all over $150,000 in COVID relief funds. And while he was one of the most notable names to admit defrauding the government as part of this, He's far from the only one. In fact, authorities say they're just beginning to scratch the surface of how much fraud resulted from the government's pandemic programs. ABC senior congressional correspondent Rachel Scott has been digging into this as part of a multi-part reporting series. Rachel, what are you finding? 
Well, Brad, we are three years since the pandemic began, and right now federal officials have no idea the scope of the fraud. They have no idea how much money was defrauded from the American government. We're still chasing the money and following the fraud. I talked to one official who thinks the estimate could be around $100 billion, but at this point, federal prosecutors are still catching up. The restaurant industry has really been the canary in the coal mine in that we were hit early before a lot of other industries, and we were hit really, really hard. So if you remember back in 2020, right, the world was shutting down at this point. You had a lot of small businesses concerned whether or not they could make it even just a few weeks. Uh, We're going to be adding uh, many billions of dollars, and we're going to be making lots of small business loans. So the Trump administration came out with these programs, COVID relief programs. You may remember the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, right? Giving these small businesses essentially a lifeline to stay afloat during the pandemic. A decision was made at the outset of the pandemic. Speed was the key. Well, essentially what happened is, is that they were trying to get the money out so quickly to people who were desperate that they essentially just sort of lowered the guardrails. They didn't actually vet people. And what that did was open up the door to a lot of fraud. And as one official told me, they essentially gave fraudsters this running start. And right now you have prosecutors trying to catch up. The prevalence of identity theft and the volume of personal data accessible to criminals is undeniable. You had fraudsters taking advantage of these programs that were meant to help small business owners, right? One of them was called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, and this allowed small business owners to take out low-interest loans with the hope of paying them back to the government when the pandemic was over. So business owners would go on, they would say that they own this business, they needed this amount of money in order to stay afloat, So fraudsters saw that program and created these elaborate schemes. One of them is this fake farm scheme. Essentially, they went on, they took out a COVID relief loan in someone's name using their address for a farm that they didn't own and one that doesn't even exist. The only problem is, is that now the government is asking for those loans to be paid back. So you have people all across the country that are getting these letters from the federal government for loans that they never took out, for farms that they don't even own. Oh, because these are real people. Like, the the fraudsters would use real names and real identities. And so now, like, this is not a victimless crime. Exactly. And farms that would normally not exist in some of the unlikeliest places, like Palm City, Florida. And that's where we found one retired couple, the Lowe's. Our IDs were stolen by someone who took out two SBA loans. Those SBA loans have caused the government to hound us. They've been struggling to clear their names for nearly three years. They've been getting letter after letter from the federal government saying that they own $100,000 in COVID relief loans because some fraudsters said that they took out a loan for that much money at their address under their name for a farm, again, that doesn't even exist. I was told in no uncertain terms that Since I have not solved this problem in the last two years, my retirement funds will be garnished. So right now, this is a couple that's still searching for answers. And now they're receiving letters with threats to garnish their retirement wages, even lower their credit score. And they're looking for help. Well, and Rachel, what's I guess so kind of frustrating is it was almost clear back in 2020 that there would be a ton of fraud here, right? Just by by the nature of there being so few guardrails. And that's not even necessarily a knock on the Trump administration. Like, I think every administration in this position would sort of think like, hey, this situation is so dire and so immediate, like you said, weeks to deal with, that 
we need to make sure people get their money really quickly. But that also means there could be a bunch of fraud. But now that we know that, now that the ship has sailed, how do you get the money back? Like, what, what is the broader plan from the government? Yeah, well, the government realizes that they need to do more. Agencies must strike a better balance, both in times of crises and in routine uh, program administration, between the speed with which they issue benefits and the need to assess applicant eligibility before payments are sent out. The Small Business Administration, which was tasked with sort of handing out these loans, didn't really have a process set up for identity theft victims for an entire year. So they're also playing catch up here. But they do tell us that this is a priority. They want to provide relief to victims. And Brad, I could tell you that I spoke with an official from the Small Business Administration. They told us that after our story aired about the Lowe's, they are now in contact with them. So hopefully they'll get some relief soon. Yeah, that's good to hear. Apparently the SBA has beefed up its unit covering all this. It says 8,000 families have been successfully sorted through this process. Another 5,000 are currently trying to get sorted out. It's just a lot of people being victimized here. Rachel Scott there at the Capitol. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brad. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, you can't buy Beethoven's talent, but maybe you could put it up for release. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. He's so famous that you know him by four notes. And yet for all his mastery, there's still a lot we don't know about Ludwig von Beethoven. Stuff about his life, even the circumstances around his death. Well, yesterday, scientists put out a new study containing clues based on locks of his hair. I've been analyzing, doing genomic analyses on locks of Beethoven's hair, or locks of hair attributed to him. That's Tristan Begg, an ancient genome researcher who worked on this study. I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Cambridge. And he describes a project almost inspired by Beethoven's own wishes. See, back in the 1800s, when Beethoven was dying, he described feeling angry, sick, isolated by his severe hearing loss. He asked people to spread the news of his illness so they could understand him better. He also encouraged friends to snip off bits of his hair, which was a thing. For historical figures, you know, locks of hair were collected and and, and you will just regularly see all, all manner of historical figures across the Atlantic in the 19th century or earlier people tended to collect them during their lifetimes, also uh, after their deaths. You could even carry around little bits of someone's body in what was called mourning jewelry. You can go on eBay right now and look for mourning jewelry made of dead people's hair from the 19th century. You can buy it. So now you got all these people carrying around Beethoven's hair. Nowadays, we know that hair carries DNA. So Tristan started sorting through all the souvenir Beethoven hair he could find, which apparently is a market rife with false strands. Turns out one famous lock of hair long attributed to Beethoven wasn't even his. Of course, the Hiller lock now famously or infamously, it comes from a woman. But once they could examine Beethoven's DNA from these authentic hair strands, they found some new information. I think the most spectacular finding and and actually accomplishment was the hepatitis B 
funding. So when Beethoven died of liver failure, there was this question as to what caused it. Was it alcoholism? Was it poison? Well, for the first time, this hair suggested Beethoven had hepatitis B, perhaps passed to him during childbirth. That, along with other genetic markers he carried, can lead to cirrhosis and liver failure. The DNA in the hair also raised questions about whether Beethoven is a Beethoven. In a legal sense, he's still, you know, a Beethoven. He is still part of the family, of course, in a genetic sense. Compared to others in his family line, Tristan says, there's a different set of Y chromosomes, meaning someone in his father's line was not a genetic descendant. But what about the biggest question of all? Is there a genetic reason he might have gone deaf? The genome hasn't told us anything about his hearing loss. The team was able to rule out a few diseases. Beethoven was not genetically predisposed to Paget's disease, for example. But think about how profoundly this man's health affected what we know of Western music. He had this prolific young composer reduced to silence in his head, sawing off the legs of his piano, pounding the keys to hear the vibrations closer to the floor, racked by pain in his gut, feeling his closest relationships growing more and more distant. That feeling still comes through in his music today. There's a particular one that resonated with me recently. Uh, That's uh, the slow movement of the Tempest Sonata. So for all the advancements in the society, all the scientific analysis, a little bit of mystery about someone's roots isn't such a bad thing. Honestly, though, you listen back to all of Beethoven's music, I don't care what you're into. These are bangers. Like, dude, don't miss. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.